welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspiring show coming right up with two very special guests. Our first guest today is Sandy Newbigging. He's here to share with us his new book, Mind Detox. Discover and resolve the root causes of chronic conditions and persistent problems. Now, Sandy is a coach and meditation expert, author, and creator of Calmology. His books include Mind Calm, Body Calm, Calm Cure, and Thunk. Shaped by thousands of hours of clinical practice, his remarkable work has been featured on television around the world. He's the founder of Calm Academy, and Sandy facilitates retreats and training. He lives between the UK and Spain and travels the world widely. So let's welcome to the show, Sandy Newbigging. Thank you so much, Marianne. What an honor it is to have you here and to talk about your new book. I hear it's getting some great reviews. So as an author, you should be very proud. I, I'm delighted when uh, one of my books is well-received and, and is making a difference. Uh, it's Daily, I'm getting emails from people uh, saying that they're benefiting from the message. So it's really, yeah, it warms my heart, actually. It's really lovely to hear that. Oh, good. Well, and so what inspired you to write this book? Uh, this book is like me getting back to my roots because it's my 12th book. And I um, started out uh, doing a thing called Mind Detox. It's a five-step method, helps people to discover and resolve the hidden root causes of chronic conditions and persistent problems. And I wanted to have a second edition of this book because honestly, I felt I could do it better. <laughs> and so I wanted to write this book in a way that it obviously conveys the, the main message and the method, but also just by reading it, someone can actually have an experience of letting go of, of toxic beliefs and and having a more positive, uh, peaceful perspective and per, uh, perception of, of life. And so I really wanted to write it in order to yeah give the, the, the method that I've used in thousands of people over the last 15 years um, the, the best book possible and, and give people the best chance possible of benefiting from from this life-changing technique. Well, and how important is that? Because a lot of times people may work on different things, but not really get to what that root causes. And so that issue, you know, kind of flares back up. Exactly. You know, we're, we are actually in a society that's, which is largely focused on uh, treating symptoms rather than causes. And uh, I want to really encourage people to stop that habit <laughs> and and move into a much more empowered place where they they don't just deal with the surface level physical symptoms or life issues that might be cropping up or the emotional stuff but actually understand why is this happening to me you know and and when you get to the why and you have a way of of simply resolving it it, it can be very life-changing indeed mm-hmm well, I understand that you kind of accidentally, I'm using like air quotes here, mm-hmm. you know, created Mind Detox, you know, the method. And can you share with us that story of how that happened? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I was invited to southern Spain uh, to work on a detox retreat uh, because the, the leaders of the detox retreat at the time were noticing that when people were mobilizing their physical toxins, their mental and emotional toxins wanted to be cleansed at the same time. And so they brought me in to help with that side of things. And so I thought I was going to be working on emotional stuff, which I did end up doing, but it was not what I expected because the first person that walked into my clinic space in this retreat um, wanted to work on a, a health condition. And I hadn't been working in that realm and area before. Um, and I didn't even know much about the condition they were wanting to work on, if I'm completely, if I'm completely honest. However, thankfully, some questions came to mind to help them discover and resolve the potential mind-based cause. Because I didn't know the physical cause. I'm not a doctor or anything like that. So I was more able to help them with with the mind-based cause. And so thankfully, the questions I asked helped them to uh, discover an unresolved emotional event from the past. We could see how that event and their relationship with that event and how that event was making them feel and believe was being mirrored in their body by the conditions it was creating. And we spent the rest of the session uh, resolving uh, the, the past event. Next person walked in. I said, how can I help? They said they 
had a physical condition again. And so I asked the same questions and loan, you know, to my surprise and, and relief, um, we, they found an unresolved emotional event. We could see the, the cause or connection between the, the condition and the, the past event and why the body was doing what it was doing today. And uh, we spent the rest of the session resolving it. And that happened time and time again. And so because I was the mind guy on a detox retreat, uh, mind detox was born. And then literally within a few months, I was being shown on television in 30 countries. Um, over the next few years, we did a number of television series um, demonstrating the power of, of the method within the context of, of a health detox retreat. And today, there's, the method is being used in, in multiple countries. I've trained practitioners in, in the ability to you know, use the method with other people in 20-odd countries. And it's really become... Uh, a very organic but you know global um, phenomenon when it comes to being able to uh, you know simplify therapy and, and speed up self healing. Mm-hmm. It seems that you also cur- you know kind of coined the term calm comology as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit for our listeners so they understand what that is and how it relates to you know mind detox. Well, in my own journey, I found that it's great to have techniques like Mind Detox to change the mind, but it's also, if you want lasting, ongoing peace, it's important to change your relationship with your mind as well. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. And so that's why my own journey, I got into meditation about 10 years ago. I uh, became a meditation teacher. I've meditated for thousands of hours personally. And through that journey, I created a couple um, modern day meditation techniques that serve different purposes. You've got mind calm, which helps you to, uh, like it says, you know, on on in the name, uh, calm your mind and experience much more uh, positive states of being, and also body calm, which helps you to heal, um, help the body to heal through Im- improving the communications happening within the mind and body, and giving the body the rest it needs to recover. And so the, the calm techniques that I created, um, I find myself using them alongside my detox. And so I, I coined the term, like you say, um, calmology, because when you bring together mind detox, calm, uh, mind calm, body calm meditations, and also another technique I created called calm cure, then it, it's a complete system of, of, of transformation and that helps you to not just treat the symptoms but really explore and resolve the underlying causes of anything that might be going in a person's body emotions uh mind or or life and so that's that's really uh where comology came from it seems that you are on this life mission to help and you could just kind of mention this a little bit but to move people and empower them beyond the symptoms and really figure out what's going on with themselves yeah you know when i discovered that peace was easier to experience than I could have possibly imagined. Um, It it became my mission to make sure that everyone knew that peace was possible for them. And what I've observed is is peace and and presence and and stillness, um, which which anyone can really access. I find them to be an important solution to to many, many problems. And so my my mission is to really help people um, rediscover that not only is peace possible, but it's easier than you think. And that's why the last few books I've written have been largely about helping people to let go of overthinking and return back to living with what I call present moment awareness. I love how you start off your book. Really, it talks about the peace prize. And you know, it, it you, you look at peace and a lot of times people strive to get to a level of inner peace and it it seems like quite a journey and it can be, quite a prize once you get there. It can, and, it, and it's a prize worth fighting for. It's a prize worth work, working towards. It, it, it's a, you know, I've had a chance to ask literally thousands of people around the world one question. Um, if you had a magic wand and you could have any one thing, what would you want? What would you ask for? What would you ask for with this one wish? And it's, and it's a question I ask people, you know, for, for themselves, you know, obviously world peace or whatever might be nice. Um, improving the environment and these are all lovely important things to want but if it was just something for yourself what would you want and and by far the most common answer is peace in fact I've actually 
you know, changed my perceptions of, of humanity in general by asking that question to so many people because I've not yet met a single person who hasn't wanted peace or love or happiness or, you know, positive states of being. And that includes the people that in your life that might be a, a, a problem to you at the moment. You know, everybody <laughs> I see wants peace, but they don't know how to experience it. And that's a very different thing. And when you start to recognize that these people that are challenging for, a challenge for me in my life right now that might be, be saying hurtful things or whatever, if given a choice, they would choose for peace. And, and when you really know that, you start to live with more compassion because you recognize they're suffering, but not from choice. You know, And if they had the choice, they would choose uh, to connect more, to live more in harmony, and like I say, to experience peace. I, I'm so glad that you shared that because I, mean, I think a lot of people, when you get to a different level of your spiritual path, you realize that the the physical things that we surround ourselves really isn't something that will make us happy in the long run. So when you look for that inner peace, it's a sustainable um, practice, sustainable feeling that you can take with you your entire life. That was a big deal for me. And I'm glad that you raised it because I was very, uh, very fortunate in my life. You know, at a very young age, I got to achieve my life goals. <laughs> um, when I, I sat down to write my life goals one year, uh, you know, writing books and all that sort of stuff. And, one, and, a, and a couple of years later, I realized that I was on TV in third countries. I had best-selling books out. All my courses and retreats were fully booked. I was with a girl in my dreams and the house in my dreams, driving the car in my dreams, <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and here's the thing, I wasn't happy yet. And, and that was really a gift for me because I got to see that I wasn't happy before I had all this stuff and I wasn't happy when I had all this stuff. And so I was the common denominator. It, I, I, I was very blessed to have the opportunity to, you know, not have it and have it all because what it meant was I, I stopped uh, postponing the inner journey. I realized quite early on in my life, thankfully, that, you know, I can accumulate possessions and prestige and positions in society and stuff, but without that inner foundation of, of peace and knowing who I really am, then it was going to feel empty. And so that's really what's, what's pushed me and motivated me to explore meditation, to be, be willing to do the inner work. And, and, and at some point, you know, I get to a point where I want to help others do the same. Well, I think we're in this great time in history where so many people are looking, we have generations of people who are looking for something that has meaning that means more and inner peace and, and being able to calm oneself is definitely at the top of the list. I would agree. I, I think the world is the context of our awakening, both individually and humanity as a whole. And although many people see the world um, in a very bad place, I, I see that it's, it, it's a major motivation for us all to, to wake up and live more consciously and, and kindly. And so I think that it's important to, um, use what's happening in the world right now, not to to just judge it and to be angry about it or be scared about it, but actually see what's in it for me. You know, what can I do to be part of the solution, not the problem? And and for me, the more people on this planet living in peace, uh, it's going to have a massive impact on how the external world looks too. Well, I know we've talked about this, you know, initially we, we discussed how mind detox is a way that people can really access the root issue that they're experiencing. And for our listeners that might be new to this, what does that mean? It means that, you know, un underlying the, the, the symptoms of, of a condition, um, there's usually some sort of mental and emotional cause. Now, I'm not saying it's always the case. I'm saying that if we only believe that, for example, uh, physical conditions have physical causes, then our options for healing are quite limited because we tend to have to turn to, you know, drugs or operations or, or diets and things like that, that only, you know. But if we're willing to entertain the possibility that maybe what's happening in my body is a reflection of maybe how, you know, my relationship with life, my most common negative emotions, my, my unhealthy beliefs that I might be carrying that aren't serving me anymore, if I'm willing to start exploring the undercover cause, then I'm a much more empowered. I've got many more options. And I actually am able to take my, my, my self-healing journey into more of my own hands. And so that's what I mean by discovering and exploring the undercover root cause 
of of a condition, an emotional issue, or some sort of life problem. So you mentioned belief, having negative beliefs. How how much of a part does that play in having, um, you know, affecting our lives? And also, how can mind detox help people shift those beliefs? Well, big question and great question. Look, our beliefs are are, are quietly justifying um, what, how we feel about life. Our beliefs are working behind the scenes to determine what sort of actions that we take or don't take. Uh, our beliefs are having an impact on our relationships, uh, whether they're filled with uh, love or, or conflict, um, jealousy or, you know, togetherness. You know, the, the, the beliefs are having an impact on any aspect of the human experience. And so what I've observed uh, over the years is that we can sometimes form uh, unhealthy beliefs. I call them toxic beliefs because it makes sense within the context of, of the book title and the method. These toxic beliefs are, are beliefs that cause us to perceive reality in a way that does not serve us and feel uh, emotions that do not help us to live healthily and, and happily and successfully. And so how does mind detox help uh, us change our beliefs? Well, we usually have these significant emotional events. I call them root cause events. And these root cause events are often the, the moment in, in our lives when we actually formed some kind of unhealthy belief, some sort of toxic belief. And so by using the method, it's a five-step method, and the first two steps in the method helped you to discover what that root cause event is. The next uh, step, step three, helps you to understand why what happened was a problem for you personally. And step four helps you to um, come to some healthier conclusions, uh, perceive the past in a more positive uh, and loving light. And in doing so, um, resolve and find peace with the past. And when you get peace with the past, that you're also automatically uh, come to a different conclusion than you may have done uh, previously. And with that healthier belief system, with that uh, lack of stress and conflict, but more peace with, with the past, um, it, it, work, it can work wonders with helping the body to return to an optimum uh, health or help you change things in your life. I've got some stories I could share, but I don't know how much time we have, uh, but some examples uh, might be useful at some point. Oh, yes, please do. Well, let me just share a quick story about uh, a client of mine called uh, Roz. She came to me because she had a pain in her abdomen that, that she'd had for years and she didn't know why it was there. So I asked her the first question, and the memory that came to her was when she was uh, um, in nursery, uh, very young, age four or so, and she'd managed to run out of her nursery, run across the street to where her house was, but nobody was in. And so the lasting memory was sitting on her doorstep crying. Now, so that was step one and two, getting the memory. Step three, we explored why was that a problem for her? And she said, I was abandoned. And she burst into, into tears and, and we'd hit the, the nail on the head. She believed that she was abandoned. We then moved on to help her explore what she knew now, that if she'd known in the past, she'd never have felt that way. And she was like, well, I now know that I wasn't abandoned. In fact, I was the one that ran away from nursery and my parents were scared where I'd gone and they found me and, and all that sort of stuff. And so she started laughing because she realized she was never abandoned in the first place. Well, long story short, the pain went away that day. And we got, we got to meet up a year later. She actually invited me out for lunch to celebrate a year of the pain going away. And as we were talking that day, she said, it's amazing. Not only am I pain-free now, but also the jealousy has disappeared in my relationship with my husband. And she realized that because she'd had this belief of being abandoned, she was filtering her world and finding evidence to prove this potential of abandonment. And it was showing up in the form of jealousy. Does that make sense? She oh, also, yeah. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she also said that she'd left the job that she didn't like and she realized she'd always been in that job for fear of being out on her own. And we both burst out laughing, realizing that she had just described the exact root cause event of being out on her own on the doorstep age four. And when she healed that, she was also able to change her career. And so that's a really good example, I think, because it shows that when you change your belief, it can not only have a physical impact, but it can also impact your relationships in a positive light. It can impact your career or your ability to make more money or whatever by changing this one core belief that we've been living with, not aware of all that time. And so that's why I love Mind Detox, because it really helps you to uncover these underlying potential causes. 
Sandy, I think there are thousands of people running to your website right now to book an appointment with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm here to help. And uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to to make sure that this was accessible to anybody. And I'm really passionate about it. And I'm really delighted uh, and appreciative that you've had me on your show today. Of course, my goodness. And, you know, and I love how you explain that because in your book, you talk about the emotional domino effect and just how this affects everything. You can see how with that example, how that all comes together. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I love the emotional domino effect because what that's basically saying is, you know, you can spend a lifetime trying to heal all the times in your life you felt a certain way or whatever, you know. But if you get to the root cause, the underlying theme that ties all these memories together and you resolve that core event, it can have a positive knock-on effect with all connected events as long as it was the, the common thread of the same toxic belief that was justifying these negative emotions in, in the other events too. And so what I'm trying to say with that chapter uh, when we're talking about the, the emotional domino effect is that you can be surprised at how quickly you can resolve a multitude of memories if you heal the common thread that ties them all together. Mm-hmm. Bring that all together. There's a section in your book I absolutely love, and it's 10 questions for coming to new conclusions. And I thought that these were really powerful for people to get outside their usual mental wheelhouse. Yeah, in fact, I'm just sharing that these questions uh, or some of them on my um, Instagram page today. So it's quite funny you mention it. But yes, um, the 10 questions. It, basically, I've had a chance to be present with people when they're having some of the biggest breakthroughs of their life. And I feel very honored to have that. And it's really helped me because I get to hear all my clients' wisdom. And so what I've observed over time is there's kind of 10 common, uh, 10 of the most common kind of aha moments in sessions that have really helped people. And so for the book, I want you to share some of these. For example, one of them is I survived. Now, you might take that for granted that you survived the, a past event that you might have felt scary or, or, or whatever. But actually, we often take the, our survival for granted. But if you'd known in the past that you would have survived the event for which we were previously really scared about, and you were going to live to tell the tale and be here listening to this radio show today, if you absolutely knew that you were going to survive it, you would have had a different relationship with that event as it was unfolding at the time in your past. And so that's just an example of one of the you know, um, well, it's not the question. The question is, did you survive (laughs) or were you safer than you thought, I think, is the question. But the answer uh, is, yeah, I I survived. You know, I'm safer than I think and I'm much more resourceful and capable than I think because I've made it this far. And we often take a few of these things for granted. So I wanted to share these 10 questions to help people to be really be prepared when moving through the method on their own. Well, and... You know, when people look at your um, website and um, initially when they look at your book, I mean, we don't want to judge a book by its cover, but they may get a different impression from you, but you are actually walking the walk. I mean, you've been there, you've done that, you've gone through a lot of different challenges. I've I've done my best and I've I've done my best on my website, you know, not try to hide that fact. I think, you know, on my homepage, I say, you know, I've been there and got the torn t-shirt to prove it. You know, I've I've experienced an eating disorder. I've been anxious. I've I've felt a million million miles away from the peaceful, happy self I wanted to to be. Uh, But I'm fortunate and I feel lucky to have found these techniques along the way that can that have really helped me not just get out the hole that I was in, but end up happier, healthier and, and more successful than before. And so I really want to encourage people that, you know, it, it doesn't need to be a scary thing to to resolve things in the past. I want to try to make me- mental health more mainstream uh, and make it some a conversation that we're willing to have. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It It's interesting. When you do go to your website and go to, you know, about my story, you do, you have it all out there. You're talking oh, yeah. to everybody about what's happened, what's gone on. And I think that's important because everybody has a thing, regardless you know, how life may be looking on the outside. Everyone's got something that they're struggling with. Yeah. And I think we all connect in, in our vulnerability. You know, we connect in our humanness. And I think the, the, the age of the guru, the man, you know, or the woman, you know, on the pedestal going, this is how you live. I think that age is, is not where we're at right now. You know, I think we need realness. We need authenticity. We need vulnerability. And we need people saying, look, I've been there. I've got the T-shirt, but look, let's, it is possible to find peace. It is possible to get resolution with this, you know, uh, and, and, and trying to empower people 
to, to find the strength of themselves to actually walk towards their own liberation. I think uh, not only you have the t-shirt, but you probably have the bumper sticker too, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think many of us do. I know I do, you know, but it, it's important that people hear that. So they understand that you are actually coming from a place of intense wisdom and knowledge on this topic, you know, well, I and, think you know, yeah. wisdom is a wonderful thing. And, you know, I was I was very fortunate to have teachers in my past and present who constantly remind me to never just get too caught up in concepts, but make sure I'm I'm living the experience of what I'm actually helping other people people do. And that's one of the reasons I've I've really you know dove into meditation. I, I meditate for you know I meditate for thousands of hours. I live in Spain up a mountain beside a meditation center so that I stay inspired and I don't forget. You know, um, I've kind of set my life up so that. Um, I, I'm like you say, I'm doing my best to walk my talk. And yes, things come up for me. Yes, I still have challenges crop up. And I'm glad that I do because I think life is a continual awakening and, and there's always opportunities for, for growth if we're innocent, humble, and open enough to, to keep growing and going. Yeah, it's so important. In your book, you talk about the freedom formula. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that with our listeners. Well, like I said earlier on, but I'll tell a bit more detail now, I talk about, you know, how there's really a two, two-pronged approach to really being free, which is not just changing your mind in the kind of traditional fix-it, change-it-improve-it model of work, but also changing your relationship with your mind, changing your relationship with your emotions and your body and, and life in general through a, a, a philosophy that I call peace with so not just peace of, but peace with your mind, peace with your body. So you can calmly coexist with everything. And I talk in the freedom formula how the ultimate root cause is people often having a, an identity crisis, believing there's someone or something that they're not. And so as many spiritual teachers have said along the way, you know, you are what you seek. You are what you want. If you want peace, you are that peace. It's within you right now. If you want happiness, that happiness is available. And if, if you're not experiencing it, then why not? And one of the most common, deeply, you know, uh, diverse reasons for, for it not being experienced is because we believe we're the voice in our head that sounds like us. We, we get too caught up in our mind and our thoughts or our emotions or our conditions and or our life circumstances. And I'm saying in that chapter, it's important to be Come aware of the awareness and the consciousness that's within you that's aware of your thoughts, aware of your emotions, aware of your body, and aware of your life. And when you become more self-aware, you start to firsthand experience what that awareness is like, and you discover it's very peaceful and calm and still, and it's very complete. And, and so the, the purpose of the Freedom Formula chapter was really just to plant the seed and give some exercises for starting the journey into being more self-aware and in doing so, you know, waking up to wellness. Well, it's interesting. Once you get to that place of inner peace and you have a taste of it, you want more of it. You know, it's, it's kind of like this, um, it's a practice that is so beneficial where you can continue to grow upon it. You know, I was sharing this exact thing a few minutes ago with one of my one-on-one mentoring clients. I was saying that, you know, the more you invest in this inner journey of experiencing this inner presence of peace, the more attractive it becomes. And you just want to place your attention on the inner presence of peace that you're cultivating. And, and, and your mind, sorry, your attraction to thinking about the past and future just naturally falls away. Your, your attraction to thinking about problems uh, naturally falls away. And, and your, your desire is just to, to live each day uh, aware of the inner peace that's always present. Well, Sandy, gosh, we could talk for hours on in your book. I mean, you're such a wonderful resource on this information. Why don't you share with us some of the services that you provide? I mean, because I'm sure that people want to connect with you and work with you. That's very kind of you for the opportunity. Well, I have one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one mentoring. So if anyone wants to work with me, they can go to my website for that. I also have an online membership site called The Calm Clan, where you can join to work with me to master meditation and, and improve all the different areas of your life. We have different themes throughout the year that we work on together. And I also have for anyone that's interested in actually, you know, passing on this message to others, I have a academy course where you can actually train with me and become qualified to be able to actually teach meditation and use my techniques with other people. So just head over to my website to find out all about whether, uh, 
for its own personal use or to actually help others with this with this work and method, um, it's sandynewbigging.com. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. It's my pleasure. You've got some great questions now. I appreciate our time together. Well, thank you, Sandy. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you and, of course, to talk about your new book, Mind Detox. Again, if you'd like to connect with Sandy, you can at sandynewbigging.com. Also, his book, Mind Detox, is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all indie retailers. We're going to pause here for a quick break. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. We'll be right back after these messages. Internationally recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. There comes a moment when you realize you're somewhere special, when you discover that each beautiful creature that you see has been rescued from a life of absolute horror and brought to this incredibly free place. Here's where their lives were forever changed and where yours will as well. Discover over 500 tigers, bears, and lions at the brand new visitor center at the Wild Animal Sanctuary just outside Denver. For more information, visit wildanimalsanctuary.org. Discover true freedom at the Wild Animal Sanctuary. There are nearly 2 million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life, one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation, healing limbs, hearts, and souls. If not me, then who? This ethos is driving the Travis Manion Foundation to empower veterans and families of fallen heroes to develop character in future generations. In 2007, Marine First Lieutenant Travis Manion was killed in Iraq while saving his wounded teammates. Travis's legacy lives on in the five words he spoke before leaving for his final deployment. If not me, then who? Guided by this mantra, veterans continue their service, developing strong relationships in the community and thrive in their post-military lives. Visit TravisManion.org and ensure the character of our nation's heroes lives on in the next generation. If not me, then who? Welcome back to Moments with Marianne. We're here today with special guest, Tina Selig, and she's here to share with us her book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, a crash course on making your place in the world. Now, Tina is an author, speaker, and faculty director at Stanford Technologies Ventures Program. She earned a PhD in neuroscience at Stanford Medical School and then decided to follow her passion for business, creativity, and innovation to work as a management consultant and entrepreneur before returning to teach. So let's welcome to the show, Tina Selig. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. What an honor it is to have you here. Gosh, congratulations. You were just on the Today Show. How exciting is that? Yeah, really, really exciting. Really fun. Uh, Well, I'm so glad we're here talking about your book today. My goodness. I mean, there's so much information in here. I wish I had this book when I was 20. Yes, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that part of the inspiration for writing it? I wrote the book actually as a letter to my son. It started as just a list. He was 16 years old, and I realized uh, with great panic that he was going to be heading off to college soon, and that although he had learned all the math and history and 
biology in school that there were so many critical life skills I wish I had imparted to him. And so I started this list. It turned into a talk and ultimately talk turned into a book. Hmm. Well, you know, I love how you start the book off with this $5 challenge project. And I'd love for you to share this with our listeners. Great. Yeah, this is a really provocative project. What happened is I was asked to teach one week in the design school. It was a brand new design school. And I was uh, tasked with teaching them one week about entrepreneurship. And I thought, what could I do in one week that would really get the concept across? So I did something very simple. I gave all the teams, there were 14 teams, I gave them an envelope and their charge was to create as much value as possible, starting with the contents of the envelope and the envelope contained $5. So they could plan as long as they wanted over that week, but as soon as they opened the envelope, they had two hours to essentially execute the task. Now, I knew they could do something. I knew, okay, $5, you could have a lemonade stand, you could have a car wash, you could have a bake sale. So I knew you could do something, but they truly blew my socks off with their creativity and the way they reframed the problem along the way. Well, that's so important because it makes them look at things a little bit in a different way. And I loved how the people who really, I think, did the best, and you talk about this in the book, the focus wasn't on the money. Exactly. The people who did the best realized that the $5 was actually a distraction and that their two hours to work on this was actually much more valuable. They said, well, their skills, their interests, their own resources were worth much more than $5. So they started looking around to see the opportunities that they could seize uh, right in their own backyard. Now, do you feel that this is just an insight that this generation typically has? Because when we look at like the millennial generation, they are more apt to look for something that provides purpose. Um, Is this kind of some of the thought process behind this? Um, possibly. I also think that what happened is I gave them permission to do this. Uh, we probably, we did an exercise in class in advance of the launch of the project that uh, gave them some skills related to seeing and seizing opportunities. And then when they were given this challenge, they said, okay, I'm going to use these same skills for this project. So do you want to know some of the things they did? Oh, Yes. Okay. So one of my favorites is a team that realized that, you know, there are students zipping around campus at Stanford all the time who are on bikes and that most of these bikes probably need air in their tires. So they set up a little stand in the center of the campus right near the student union where they offered to fill up people's bike tires and were charging them a dollar. And at first they thought, well, you know, they could go around the corner or down the street to the gas station and do this, but they realized pretty quickly you know, people aren't driving there. They're right in the middle of campus. And so they realized that this was actually a real convenience for the students. So people started stopping and getting their bikes pumped up. Then halfway through the two hours, they did an experiment. They thought, you know what? What if we don't ask for money? What if we just ask for donations? Whatever you're going to give us. And what happened is instead of giving them a dollar, which they had charged initially, people started giving them more. $5. They'd pull out $5 bill. And they ended up with over $200 by the end of the two hours. That is very creative. And I love how they're thinking outside the box to not only... It's not really kind of, they solved a problem in one way, but also to generate just, um, you know, income and creativity and, and helping as they go. Yes. But you know what happened besides the team who's pumped up bike tires mm-hmm. and the one that, you know, made reservations and sold them at popular restaurants and those that took pictures at the annual big celebration and made beautiful, gave these beautiful pictures to people. The team that made the most money totally reframed again. Instead of looking at the $5 or the two hours as their most valuable asset, they realized their most valuable asset was the three minutes they got to present in class. And they turned that into commercial time and they used it for a company that wanted to recruit all the students in the class. And that company paid them $650 to essentially do an advertisement about coming and working for them. Oh my Pretty gosh, cool. that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so when you were developing the topics for this book, and you know, you again, you wrote this for your son, 
Were there some topics that you thought, gosh, I really need to address this with him and this is the perfect way to do it? Exactly. Exactly. And the fun thing is the the book weaves together several different types of uh, content. They're the stories from like this one are stories from my classroom on creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship. They're stories from my own life of ways that I've actually implemented these ideas, but also it includes lots of examples from uh, people from around the world and how they use these to essentially live the lives they, they dream to live. Was when you were doing this, this book and pulling everything together, was there anything that really surprised you as you were working to just bring examples that would be beneficial for your son and others? What surprised me was that my process, um, I, I wrote, I had a very, very short deadline for this book. I had to write the whole book in four months. And so I had to get a system in place to really make that happen. So every morning I would write for three hours from six to nine in the morning. And at lunchtime, I would always meet with a different person who I would ask them lots of questions. I kind of went through the table of contents of the book, essentially looking at all the concepts and getting their stories. And at the end of the day, I would just mine their stories and then weave them into the book. And my insight and the surprise was that every single person who I was talking to, these people who had been very successful in their life, had many, many stories that resonated with all the concepts that were being presented. Do you feel that your background, having a PhD in neuroscience, also was a great contributor to how resourceful this book is? So that's an interesting question. I mean, I have pivoted my career many, many times. I started out as a neuroscientist and then went out into industry and then came back to academics. Um, And, you know, I could tell the stories if it makes complete sense, or I could tell it as if it was a random walk. I believe the most valuable thing I got out of that PhD was learning how to be comfortable with uncertainty. When you're doing research, you're working on problems that don't have an answer yet. You have to get comfortable doing experiments where you don't know what's going to happen. And so this, that process um, is very similar to writing a book like this, where you don't know exactly where it's going to go. There are going to be a lot of surprises on the way, and you have to then craft something out of it that makes a lot of sense. Well, you've done an excellent job with this. I enjoyed the book very much. And there was a, a portion in this book that was a little surprising. I think people go, what is this? You know, because you talk about a failure resume. So what is that? And why is that so important to have? Yeah, I have my students write failure resumes, essentially resumes with their biggest screw-ups, personal, professional, academic. And the idea is that if you're not failing sometimes, you're, you're probably not taking enough risks. All of learning comes from trial and error. And therefore, you know, we, we need to be able to make some mistakes and understand them and learn from them as opposed to running away from them or fearing them so much we don't do anything. I mean, consider the fact that a baby learning to walk or talk or ride a bike or do algebra. I mean, all of these things as you grow up, these are things you don't expect to do right the first time and nobody expects you to. And why do we expect that of adults? Um, we should, as adults, be comfortable understanding that when we're doing something that's really complicated the first time, there are going to be some surprises along the way and always an opportunity to, to learn from them. Well, I love how in the book you have listed, you know, professional failures, academic, personal failures, and you really kind of brought your stories forward where people can really look at this and go, gosh, okay, I can understand that, you know, what you talk about avoiding conflict. Well, the funny thing is I didn't initially have my own failure resume in the book. And I showed an early copy of it to one of my students who was giving me some feedback on the book. And she said, I really like this concept, but I'd love to see an example. And I thought, okay, whose example am I going to put in? Maybe I'll put in my husband's failure resume. (laughs) And I realized, (laughs) no, if I was going to put one in, it needed to be my own. And so uh, I spent a bunch of time. It was actually the first time I did it myself. And um, I keep my failure resume at this point up to date. Uh, It is a very powerful exercise uh, for lots of reasons. Let's say you do something at work and you're embarrassed that you made a mistake. Instead of spending all of your time perseverating on it, reminding yourself of it, beating yourself up, if you write it in your failure resume, you write it down, okay, today I spoke too soon and said something I was embarrassed about, 
I really, next time, I'm going to spend some more time thinking before I say something. Okay, let's imagine that's your, your failure. You get to let go of it. And it also is much more likely that you're not going to do the same thing again because you've taken the time to actually formally remind yourself of the lessons you've learned. Mm, I love that. I love that. And it, you know, it, it makes it so that it's not this burden that they're like dragging around with them. They can let go of that. And I love how you have that. Yeah. Well, I think it's valuable for everybody. It's one of, uh, it's, it's something that uh, I know my students tell me that when they graduate, they continue doing this. It ends up becoming, you know, a very uh, healthy daily, weekly or monthly habit. Mm-hmm. Well, in your book, you also have some very pointed questions that raise you know, um, some thoughts here. So like one, you talk about how do you know when to quit when you push through a problem? And I think a lot of times people get so focused on what they're doing and trying to solve that they'll just kind of keep going no matter how difficult or, you know, maybe road signs are coming up saying go the other way. Yeah. Knowing when to quit is really tricky. Um, it's, you know, we're taught taught to persevere, to push through barriers. And that's a really great trait to know when you, when something isn't working to figure out, you know what, I'm going to really figure out what I need to do to make this, to make this work. On the other hand, sometimes it's a smart idea to let, you know, to sort of count your losses and move on to something else. You know, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a project, whether it's a business and uh, knowing when to quit and, and, taking the time to really deeply think about whether this is something that you know in your gut you've run out of steam on versus something that, you know, if you really put your mind to it, you can make it work. It's interesting. Um, I'm thinking about one of my former PhD students in our department did her research on why company founders sell their companies. And most of the prior research had been done on why do large companies buy small companies? Why do they acquire them. But her insight was that when companies, small companies get purchased, it's almost always because of some personal reason on the part of the founder. Um, they're, you know, they're exhausted and they're tired. They're ready to, to move on to something else. Something's happening in their life. They might have had a new baby. Something has happened that changes the context and they're willing to let it go. Um, it usually is a very personal decision as opposed to something that is just um, something that someone on the outside could determine if it's the right thing to do. That is a very interesting insight. So when we look at someone that's running like a multi-million dollar company and why they're selling it, I think it gives, you know, people who are, you know, in their twenties permission to kind of rethink, you know, some of their processes as well. Yeah, exactly. And you think about those companies that, People have gotten offers. I mean, you think about Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg got many offers to sell the company. And he said, no, I'm actually not done with this yet. I want to keep building it. Whereas you look at companies like Instagram, they made the decision to sell their company, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, the story is a very personal one about whether, you re- whether you're ready to let go and do something different or whether you're um, really committed to continuing with the effort. Yeah, there's really no wrong answer, but I, I like how it gives people permission to do either or. Exactly. But to think deeply about it, because, you know, I know that in my life, there have been times in which I've given up on things way too early. Uh, and, and it's an interesting reason why. Uh, in fact, I was talking with some students about this just the other day. My first company I started, I wanted to demonstrate to myself. I wanted to prove to myself that I could start a company and sell it in two years. Okay, that might sound like a great thing, but actually that was an incredibly limited vision I set for myself. Suppose well, what happened is when I got to two years and was given an offer to buy the company, I sold it. In retrospect, it was a really silly thing to do. I had was I was dealing with some internal operational issues and some um, issues with my team. These were all issues that could have been solved. But because I had set the intention that I wanted to essentially sell the company or prove I could do it in two years, when that two-year mark came around, I was much more willing to let go of it. Mm. Whereas if I had had a bigger vision for myself, I probably would have um, given myself permission to push through, maybe you know, fire the people I needed to fire, raise more money, do, do other things that were going to allow me to get to the next step. 
Yeah, to make that next level. And, you know, and there's so many points I can talk about with that. I'm just like, ooh, where should we pivot to now? But, you know, it's interesting because in your book, you talk about risk. And I think that this example you gave us is just one, one example of risk. And a lot of times when people look at risk and failure, if they don't hit a certain point, they consider themselves to be a failure if their, their risk it doesn't pan out like they intended. Yeah, I am. I've spent a lot of time thinking about risk taking and failure, and I uh, have my students uh, fill out a riskometer that we created in our class. And it's essentially a little chart that you fill out that looks at the different types of risks we have in our lives. Uh, because risk taking is not binary, it's much more nuanced. There are physical risks, and social risks, and emotional risks, and creative risks, and political risks, and ethical risks, et cetera, et cetera. And so you might be really comfortable taking a physical risk, uh, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, but oh my gosh, you would never get up and talk in front of a crowd and take a social risk to give a talk. Uh, for me, it would be the, just the opposite. And so understanding your risk profile and then understanding where you might want to push yourself a little bit to get out of that, to get out of those constraints that are self-imposed. Yeah. So I know you talk about this in your book and I'd love for you to expand on it for our listeners because I love this. What are your thoughts on rules? Rules, rules, as in breaking the rules. Yes. Rules, comma, breaking the. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I'm a huge believer that most rules are recommendations. And, uh, you know, we all know the old adage to beg for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. Uh, One of my colleagues said it in our class. I thought it was totally brilliant. Uh, He said, when you ask for permission, you're just transferring the risk to someone else. I think this is really a powerful concept that if I feel comfortable doing something, I should really be willing to take the risk myself. Um, if I ask someone else's permission, they might say no, like, because they don't feel comfortable. But if I feel comfortable, I should be able to trust myself and know that I, maybe I should take a small risk in that direction because it's something that might be meaningful to me. So risk-taking is a, a powerful role in our lives, but also it allows us to look at the rules around us as recommendations. Well, I think, again, that gives a lot of leeway so they can look at very creative ways to get to maybe some of their goals. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And uh, I know that you have specific thoughts in regards to when people are working for working a job, any job, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I am a huge believer that when you get a job, you are not getting that job. You're actually getting the keys to the building. Um, If you go into a job and all you do is exactly the same thing that with a job description was, what's going to happen is uh, everyone's going to say, okay, you're in a perfect job for you. Uh, We're just going to keep you in that job. But those people who see the opportunities around to help other people beyond their very, um, prescribed role, who see a place where there might be a need that has, hasn't been filled. They start stretching. And of course, they do their own job. They do the things they're expected to do, but they go beyond it to do something that's totally remarkable. That's the time in which people will say, wow, you know, we want to expand your responsibilities and your, the opportunities and the, the doors are going to open. It really is allowing them to see that they're taking a level of ownership in the work that they're doing that can also drive them. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. It's, it's so exciting because that, that's something a lot of people never learn. <laughs> so well, to learn it's fascinating like, having people who, you know, work with me and for me and on my teams. It's fascinating to see the difference between those people who just take a tremendous amount of initiative. Mm-hmm. They look around corners, they anticipate needs, they uh, fill gaps that, maybe everybody didn't even see, but as soon as they were filled, you go, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that we had a problem here. This is, these are the people that end up really thriving in their organizations. If someone just does their job, they just wait to be asked all the time to deliver on commitments. You know, it's a recipe for staying in the same role or maybe not at all. Mm -hmm. Kind of that level of complacency. Exactly. 
you must have a lot of people come up to you and say, you know, I, I bought the book, what I wish I knew when I was 20 and I crossed off the 20 and put 40 or 30. Uh-huh. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> In fact, I've had a lot of people who've written to me who are many, many, many decades older who say these have been really powerful lessons. I mean, because it really is about how do you craft the life you dream of to live? Mm-hmm. It's about how do you challenge assumptions and break the rules and make your own luck? And how do you give yourself permission to have, uh, to craft that life that you're really hoping to live? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, life lessons that, you know, probably a lot of people, they weren't given an instruction book on how to do this. And so it helps them get to like a new level of awareness, you know, personal awareness. Well, I think a lot of people are not, well, this is why I wrote this book for my child is I felt as though these things might have been modeled, but they weren't explicit, explicitly saying, these are the things that are going to make you successful. I mean, everything down to, you know, remember to write thank you notes. That's (laughs) the act of being appreciative every single day of the people who do things for you is an enormous uh, um, variable in your life. I was going to say a tool, but it's not really a tool. It's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. If someone does something for you, um, that's been helpful in any way. They a haven't done something for someone else or themselves. This is a opportunity cost, and you need to absolutely recognize this. But here's the thing: by recognizing what other people do for you, what happens is they're much more likely in the future to do something else. If I do something for someone, and maybe several times I've done something, and they never say thank you, you know what happens? It's unlikely the next opportunity that comes around is going to go their way. Yeah. Well, and it's so true. In your book, you you talk about the difference between gratitude and appreciation. And a lot of times people don't understand that there is a huge difference there. Exactly. Now, gratitude is how you feel, right? I feel grateful. And it's so important. You know, people keep grateful journals, you know, um, list of all the things they're grateful for at the end of the day. That is the first step. You also have to take it to the next step of showing appreciation, whether it's your spouse who took out the, the garbage or your neighbor who brought in your mail or your boss who, you know, introduced you to someone who was going to be a mentor. Every time that someone does something for you, you need to demonstrate this. In fact, I've adopted a habit where at the end of each day, I go through my calendar for the day and I send thank you notes to all the people who have helped me that day. And it doesn't take very long. It might take five or 10 minutes, depending upon what's happened. The person who treated me to lunch, the person who took a meeting, the person who, um, you know, gave me a copy of their book, whatever it was. There was something that happened that um, I should be grateful for and show my appreciation. Mm-hmm. And this goes right along with, you know, are you smart or are you right? And that's a big thing because a lot of times people, sometimes they want to be right. Yeah, it's a really interesting nuanced difference. There's sometimes the smart thing to do. Yes, you could get away with that. You know, you could figure out how to do something, but it might not be the right thing to do. Um, we're so often, uh, I'll, I'll give you, well, let's, let me, let me think of an example on the spot here. I, as it's the end of the school year and I've been doing some grading and, you know, I could look at my students and just look at all the numbers in a very, very clinical way and give them grades based on exactly what they delivered. I also could get to know the students very carefully. I could understand where they're coming from, what challenges they've had that quarter, what other things are going on in their lives. And it might be that the smart thing to do is to give them all, you know, knock them down if they didn't deliver completely. But the right thing might be to do to give them a leeway. Maybe they didn't finish just an assignment and I give them an, an incomplete or let them finish something in a couple of weeks if I know they've been going through something that's been really difficult. Well, I think that that, you know, offers a lot of compassion and you look at them as a whole person, what they're bringing to the table and it's, you know, you're practicing what you preach. I think the other thing that I like to think about is how might I tell this story 10 years from now Mm -hmm. when I'm in a very different situation and someone asked me about a situation where I, where I had to make a very difficult decision, how 
do I want to tell it not in the heat of the moment? Sometimes we get so worked up about something, we get upset, we get angry, we're frustrated, and our our initial reaction is do the smart thing. Well, I can get away with this, or I could sue someone, or I could, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to react that could be, it's not against the law. But then you step back and say, what's the right thing to do in this situation? And uh, it's a story that you would be much more proud to tell in the future. Yeah. And, and you know, that really does come with a lot of wisdom. And that's why this book is such a great resource for people of all ages. You, you talk about also never miss an opportunity to be fabulous, which I love. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Sure. So this came about as a... Um, just something I said the first day of class with my students, I would tell them about what the expectations were for them and what I promised to do as their teacher. And then I'd say, listen, my objective is for all of us to never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. You know, I'm happy to give everybody an A, but the bar is really high and I'm expecting a lot from you and I expect a lot from myself. And this concept ended up being very, very sticky. People were waiting to hear it. Instead of being told, here's what you need to do to get an A, here's what you need to do to you know, check the boxes, um, I was basically taking off the lid and saying, you know what? Life is not a dress rehearsal. If you're not going to do your best work now, when are you going to do it? I'm inviting you to really knock the ball out of the park. And remarkable things happen as a result. I mean, that's just what's so special about this. Um, you know, it it might feel like a very loose uh, concept, but it's actually very powerful because once you're given this this challenge to be fabulous, to do your best work, remarkable things end up happening. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, people just need permission, especially at a younger age, to to know that that's okay to feel. You know, it's like, hey, I can be fabulous at whatever I do. Exactly. There, there, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, and uh, it it's wonderful because the bar just kept getting raised for every student and every project. And by the end of the quarter, the students were beyond delighted and surprised by the things that they had accomplished. Mm. To, to be in your shoes, you must have the best seat in the house seeing what all the students do. I feel very, very fortunate. Well, and I know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, and I think I have time for one more question here, but you talk about luck. So what are your thoughts on luck? I am a huge believer that we make our own luck, that luck is like the wind blowing constantly and it's up to us to build a sail to catch it. There are opportunities around us all the time, even in the worst situations. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated because I'll often have students in my classes who on the surface look really different and uh, I'm sorry, they look really similar. Um, they're studying the same thing. Their grades are the same. They're but they end up engaging with the world in such different ways, making themselves lucky um, in different to different degrees. And the, there'll be one student who is out there taking some risks, taking on opportunities, pushing the limit every single day. And the other student who hangs back is not willing to take those risks. And those risks that you take, those little risks, get compounded every single day. So ultimately, the person who's willing to take them ends up going much, much further. What do you want readers to take away from your book? I mean, there's so much great advice in the book itself. What, what one thing would you want them to take away from the book and our discussion? One of the most important things is that we have a lot of agency in our life, and the book is about the ways that you can use that, how you can challenge assumptions and break the rules, doing things your own way, how to get off of the expected path, essentially to create a life that is a reflection of what you want. And it's allowing you to open your eyes to the possibilities and giving you very, very specific tools on how to do that. Well, gosh, Tina, we can talk for hours on your book. I loved it and thought it was a great resource. I learned a lot and you know, and I'm definitely not 20. So (laughs) where can our listeners connect with you and be part of your community and learn more about your work? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is T Seelig. That's T S E E L I G. And I have a website, tinaseelig.com. And also at Stanford, we have a huge collection of resources, videos, podcasts, articles, all about uh, having an entrepreneurial spirit. It's at ecorner.stanford.edu. Well, it's been such an honor to spend time with you, Tina, and I'm so glad we got to spend this time talking about your book. What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Again, you can connect with Tina at tinaselig.com. And her book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all indie retailers. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Marianne airs every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.